This is Nerve Radio. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Podcast. Your one-stop shop for all your sporting news and discussion. Hello and welcome back to the Ultimate Sports Podcast on what is our one-year anniversary give or take of week. And as well as Toby Foster joining myself, Sam Machin, we have the return of a fan favourite. He's back. Dan O'Connell. How are you doing, boys? I'm very good, thank you. Nice to be back on the show. He's returned from the wilderness. Great to see. (laughs) Yeah, back in from the cold. Yeah, we had a cold off down. He's just, just left uni for a bit, haven't you, really? Yeah, taking a year out, I think it was the best option for me at the time. But this podcast, I'm back and I'm ready to get the show on the road again. And we're going to see a return of your segment. Highly anticipated, hugely appreciated. It's what people have been crying out for in Dan's stat, but that's later on. First, we're going to be talking golf, F1, darts, snooker, boxing and horse racing. With a little discussion on who we think is Britain's most successful sportsman or woman ever. Golf is where we're going to start off, though. And before we get into the actual Masters itself, I want to talk about that little clip from the practice and that shot from John Rahm. What did you make of that? Once in a lifetime, wasn't it? And I thought his celebration was actually quite muted, considering what a shot it was. I think I'd have just been leaping around for days if I'd just made that. But what an incredible hit, honestly. And I think that's one. Unfortunately, it's sort of, I think it slipped a little bit under the radar as the, as the week carried on, because Ram wasn't right up there at the top of the leaderboard. But I still think that deserves a lot of credit. And that's one that they're going to be playing back on the highlight reels for many years to come, I think. I thought it was fake initially because because of the reaction. I thought, Dad, that's not a real shot. No way yeah. has he just done that. <laughs> he completely defied physics, not only to get it to skim across the water, but also the way it just happened to roll around the green as if there was like some sort of lane it was following. It was crazy. And then he just walked off as if it was like, ah, oh, well, I've just hit a nice, simple 300-yard ball straight down the fairway. It was like, all right, <laughs> keep the niggas <laughs> on, mate. Yeah, unfortunately, it was only practice. And as you say, he didn't do too well in the actual tournament itself by his high standards. That video, of course, blew up on Twitter. And if you haven't seen it, get out from under your rock because it's incredible viewing. But the tournament itself, the number one, Dustin Johnson, he came away to win the 84th Masters by five shots, 20 under par. And it was an incredibly easy victory for him, considering. Yes, DJ. Um, and it was never really in doubt, was it? You have to say, Dustin Johnson, he, as you said, it, it was a, was it a record breaking, um, record breaking score, I think, in the Masters and just never looked like being challenged, did he? Uh, really on the final day. It was I thought it was a great example of composure that he showed. And there was just it almost took the sting out of the competition because he was just, you know, gliding round so easily. And that's no mean feat either. I think the commentators compared it to uh, that old analogy of a, a swan, isn't it? Where they're sort of just gliding along, but actually underneath they're, they're working really hard, kept his nerves cool and deservedly won the green jacket. I think a couple of players might be a little bit disappointed. There was the um, Australian, wasn't there? Young Australian, Cameron Smith. He was looked at one point like he might mount the challenge. I think he got within two off Johnson, but it wasn't to be. And uh, the world number one, there was no shock in the Masters. The world number one took it. And an enjoyable tournament it was too. Watched quite a bit of the final day and, and really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, 
totally agree. I mean, DJ, he's one of these players that's threatened to dominate in the sport because he did it a few years ago, didn't he? He won a major and there was a bit of talk of, oh, DJ is going to be the new man, the new Tiger Woods. And then it just sort of, did, he sort of slipped off the radar for a little while. I think he only lasted in the end about 30 days at the top. And then he's sort of, this is like his first major win since then, really. And it's kind of like put his name back on the map. He's, he's shown glimpses before of what a good player he is. And it's just like, he hasn't really been able to replicate that form up until now and then he won by five shots this week I mean that's that's pretty good going at the Masters and a bit disappointment for Tiger Woods sadly and you know because he was going well at one point and it looked like the uh the back-to-back might be on uh he was certainly well in contention for a part and then it all went disastrously wrong didn't it at one of the uh holes on the final I round I think it was 10 strokes that's on the part right. three and it was the first time in his career that he's ever hit double figures in his professional career on a whole. So disastrous wow. for him. I mean, that that in and of itself is a stat, because I think they said he'd played something like 350 rounds of golf in his professional career, and he'd never done that before. But, that was going to be my stat as well. <laughs> oh, no, was it? <laughs> no, no, I'm messing, don't worry. <laughs> oh, good, good. I wouldn't ever want to ruin the stat. Uh, just, we might as, well end, might as well end the podcast now. If that's the case. <laughs> but, um, yeah, disappointment for Tiger, but he'll be back next year, as a lot of them will, I'm sure. And hopefully next year, we might have some of the patrons back in as well to watch, because I, I did think that that was missed. Um, yeah, the sound of the clapping. Yeah, just the, the pattering of applause. I, I yeah. quite like a golf crowd. They're not too in your face, are they? But uh, they're they're a good, and you know, no one had to shout for or anything like that because there wasn't anyone for the ball to hit. So just, yeah, la- lacked a little bit of atmosphere, but um, I'm sure they'll be back next year, I hope, and uh, the tournament will be back to normal. Yeah, yeah, Tiger Woods uh, tied for 38th in the end. Deschambeau tied for 34. John Rahm, who we mentioned earlier, 7th and McElroy 5th. Cameron Smith, as you said, was the guy who finished in second place, 15 under par. It was quite a margin of victory for Dustin Johnson. And I want to talk a bit about something I remember you doing last year, Dan, I think it was. Driving down the fairways of fashion in golf. <laughs> Any yeah. comment to that in relation to the uh, Augusta Masters? No, not really. It's not like Wimbledon where they've got to wear a certain uniform. Tony Fino, I always think he looks quite dapper. (laughs) I don't know why him particularly, but he just always seems to dress very smartly. But I think, yeah, there wasn't a great deal of fashion on the fairway for you to appraise, Dan. (laughs) No, true. Although one year, I don't know if you guys remember or know about it, but Ian Poulter, who's known as a a well-known Arsenal fan, once did a round of golf wearing a, an Arsenal shirt from the Invincible season, that like Burgundy uh, O2 sponsors Arsenal shirt. And um, he had to wear a collar, I think, underneath it as well. So he had this football shirt on and like a collared shirt. <laughs> and he did a whole round wearing that one. So that was quite funny for him. Although I must admit, I wasn't too happy on the club that he was supporting. <laughs> Just one thing I want to ask, to start with you, Dan, on this one is, do you think the Masters taking place, obviously, later in the year, usually it would have been bit earlier in autumn does that make Dustin Johnson's victory seem even all the better oh I've not really thought of that before but probably does in fairness because the atmosphere is probably it's different to like normal hot summer. stronger winds yeah exactly like the winds will be stronger the air will be a bit I don't know more uh, like thicker I guess because in the heat there's the air seems thinner I think almost unless it's humid at the moment like the it's more cloudy there's a bit more atmosphere and just 
I don't know. I don't. I'm not really a golf expert to know the term, but that sort of like the atmosphere does affect the ball's flight. Sometimes, it, when it's a bit drier, the ball will roll further as well. So I, I think probably, I think you could say yeah that his achievement doing it now, as opposed to when the Masters would normally have gone ahead, is something to be considered. I wonder if it just slightly took the pressure off that it was in uh, in winter. Because it was this was almost a bonus Masters, wasn't they? You know, the, the Masters had been cancelled, and for a lot of the year, the expectation was that it wouldn't go ahead. But now, sort of six months until the next Masters, we we have had this tournament restaged. So perhaps the pressure was off slightly. But it's a little bit of a shame for Dustin Johnson because he's not going to be able to keep the um the green jacket for too long before it's going to be up for grabs again. But these are the yeah. prices we pay in COVID times, I suppose. Yeah, I Absolutely. suppose fans as well. The, the idea of thousands of fans watching and it's a bit I know with obviously there's millions watching on TV but you don't feel that whereas you can hear the like the gasps and the like cheers of the fans and the, the, the leader on the final day is that everyone on the course following them that added pressure that wasn't there I suppose it swings and roundabouts isn't it you can go either way with it but I think I think the achievements shouldn't be knocked still and from the number one in golf to the number one driver in F1 now with a now seven-time world champion Lewis Hamilton that is a title that is official having won the Turkish Grand Prix in the past weekend which goes well on his shelf of records along with 94 outright wins 97 pole place positions 163 podium finishes 227 point finishes and 3,738 career points all records he holds far above anyone else. As an F1 fan, Dan, what do you make of Lewis Hamilton? He just can't stop breaking records lately. Yeah, no, I mean, he is an absolutely phenomenal driver, my favourite, partly because obviously I'm British, but also because he's just an exciting driver to watch. And I've seen from when he first joined in 07, this like raw, un- untapped talent just had-, had never seen someone so, I don't know, just... They were just a bit of a maverick, really. He was just so crazy and he'd, look, he'd make moves that just shouldn't be happening. And he just, uh, and over the years, his first few years, he'd be hit crashing like in 07 China when he crashed into the pit lane. It's just things like that where because he didn't have the nows, he wasn't getting the results that backed up his raw talent, his raw speed. But as the years have gone on, he's matured and he's just become this unstoppable machine really and Turkey was just the perfect example of him learning from previous lessons through his maturity I mean the second to last lap he could have come in the pits for a safety stop as it was called but he chose not to because of what happened in China in 07 where it was a little bit damp it was on old intermediate tyres and they became almost slicks and to go in a soaking wet pit lane he was like on an ice rink and could have easier crashed and that would have been it the race was over and although he would have won the title it still would have been it would have been overshadowed somewhat when he could have won, won the race. And I mean, look how he's won it. It's just, it was an unbelievable drive from someone to come from sixth in those conditions on that track. It's just, it just proves a point that he is up there as one of the greatest racing drivers there's ever been. I think the first title has to be the best, in, in my view, of the ones that he's won. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the way back in 2008 now, but the, um, you know, the wars over uh, with Massa, and I think that was probably the best season of F1 that I've certainly ever seen back back then. And just, yeah. you know, the, the, the drama of that final, um, that final race and him overtaking on clock on the final corner. And also the fact that when both drivers crossed the line, both teams thought they'd won and both were celebrating. And it was only then that um, they realised that, that Hamilton 
Robertson had won. But yeah, a, you know, a really, I think that was a landmark moment for the sport. And as we've seen, he's just gone from success to success and, you know, had various different teammates in that time, but none of them have really been able to keep up with him, have they? No, it's true. I mean, it was it was very much the uh, Aguero moment of Formula One, wasn't it? That sort of like yeah. the Balotelli was massacring the line, and then it was like <laughs> the World Championship, and then when he passes Glock on like the penultimate caller, that's when the Aguero starts, <laughs> and the O finishes as he crosses the line, and it's he's become world champion. It was like by far that was the most thrilling season I've ever seen in my life, and I probably don't think it'll be much because it was just whole year's effort has come down to two corners on yeah. the mixed conditions. It's crazy. And it was the competitivity, wasn't it, as well, of the cars and the fact that it was a genuine competition between Ferrari and Mercedes, uh, sorry, and McLaren, I should say. There yeah. wasn't the uh, golf in class between them. And, you know, to have those two drivers in the Ferraris, in Raikkonen, who was the reigning world champion, and Massa, the fact that he managed to compete with both of them and, and, you know, beat both of them was testament to, as you said, Dan, his raw talent. And I think obviously since then, he's a, a lot of the time he has had the benefit of the better car since, but he earned that in that 2008 season. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. He's just, he's just such, a, not not as much now I'd say, because the competition is a little bit softer now that it's Bottas is his teammate, but certainly when he was uh, Alonso's teammate, and then when he was fighting the likes of Massa and uh, Reichen and, and then Vettel and Rosberg, those were the years. I mean, on my favourite season, apart from the 08 season, was probably the 2010 season. He didn't win the championship. I think he might have come fourth. But it was just that constant, you didn't know where he was going to come first or fifth. And he just sometimes he'd pluck these results out of nowhere, just like, what on earth? What, what, what a driver? Because the car wasn't the best on the grid, by no means. But yet he still plucked these results, like Turkey in 2010. He just gets these results. You just think, you just have to bow your head and just say, well played. I said last week, Dan, or the last edition of the podcast, that Lewis Hamilton is probably, or he hears that as a fact, that one of our most successful, in terms of Britain's, athletes of all time, but also one of the most hated. Do you think he gets an unfair rep, perhaps, for people that don't particularly like F1 that much? Um, it's quite easy, I think, for someone who's not that much into Formula 1 to think, oh, he's got the fastest car, what do you expect? That sort of ignorance to think, fastest car, in, obviously he's going to most likely win the, the races sort of thing. But then you could argue Valtteri Bottas, his teammate, finished 17th at the weekend when Lewis is out there winning. And so unless you know more than just what's on the surface of Formula 1. I think it's quite easy just to brush it under the carpet and just go, oh, what do you expect? That's just so easy. It's kind of like in, if a, like a team in football bought all the best players in the world. They'd be like, of course they win the Champions League. They've got the best players in the world. But sometimes there's little details that define people. And with Lewis, he's beaten Alonso head-to-head. He's beaten Kovalainen head-to-head. He's beaten Jensen head-to-head, I think, every season bar one. Only twice in two seasons in his career, I think it is, his teammates beaten him in the standings, which is crazy. I mean, you've got Alonso, who was a double world champion at the time when he did it with him. Kovalainen was more of a number two driver. And then you've got uh, Nico Rosberg, who did eventually win a world championship, keeping him out of the frame for two years. It just shows that he's a man, a class above the the rest of the drivers in the field, I think, apart from maybe the likes of Alonso, normally, or a, a Raikkonen or a Vettel. Other, and also, sorry, going back to your question, for people who don't know who might shrug off Lewis's achievements, I think also there's that issue about tax paying where some people think he doesn't pay taxes because he's got a house in Monaco 
And then other people who are saying, oh, he's one of the most, uh, he's one of the highest taxpayers in the UK. I think the uncertainty there for people who don't follow the sport, I think that can also cloud judgment because it's kind of like, if he doesn't pay taxes, why should we be giving him credit? Because it's kind of like taxpaying such an important thing for the UK economy. Well, yeah, I, I think it's that also plays into the knighthood discussion, doesn't it? Because I've yeah. heard some people say Andy Murray and Mo Farah have been given uh, knighthoods whilst they're still competing as sportsmen. You know, that uh, t- it tends to be that um, quite often, I think, they wait until the, the sportsman or woman retires before they give them the, you know, the ultimate honour. But um, in these cases, they haven't. So I think there are some people saying that Hamilton perhaps should uh, should receive a knighthood. But again, there's this issue of he's resident in Monaco and all that kind of thing. And are we giving out knighthoods to people who, who don't live in the country? And as you said, there's the taxpayer issue as well. I'm, I'm not particularly on top of the detail with that one. So I, I wouldn't want to say either way uh, no. about that. But I can see why that plays into the controversy as well. Because like you said, there's the ambiguity about it amongst the public. So it's an interesting one. I think I think ultimately he will get uh, a knighthood at some point. I think there's a lot of public pressure for it, particularly yeah, among F1 fans. But it is just about whether they wait until he retires or whether they give him it in the next year or so. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I mean, he certainly draws plenty of criticisms from his personality and some of the choices that he makes and some of the quotes he comes out with, really. And I think that's where it uh, kind of stems from this almost disdain in some parts uh, of social media for him. Sometimes I think that, but then sometimes I think you look at some of the other people that were given knighthoods, not necessarily sports people, but uh, certain people in business and entertainment. And I think their characters in some cases are not necessarily squeaky clean. So I think if, yeah, if you want to sort of pick fault with people, I'm not sure how high the standard is anymore in terms of your character to to get a knighthood. Well, Nick Clegg's got a knighthood, so (laughs) (laughs) that throws the whole thing into question, if you ask me. (laughs) And we've got to admit, everyone makes mistakes and um, and perhaps in today's world, you it's uh, too unapologetic about it and unforgiving when it when it should be. And mistakes he has made aren't, aren't that great. He's just come out with some controversial stuff about being vegan when he's driving an F1 car. Or there's some, obviously, the tax scandal doesn't help. Who knows? No. We, we might have Sir Ronnie O'Sullivan before long if, uh, <laughs> if the uh, benchmark is lowered. <laughs> Potentially. I mean, I expect Lewis to be knighted. We had... Obviously, Sir Ian Sterling Moss and Jackie Stewart, both obviously famous racing drivers in their field, both knighted for lesser efforts almost um, compared to what Hamilton's done on the track. Yeah, yeah. so well, Just... Sterling Moss is known as the greatest man to never win a world championship yeah. and he's knighted for it and Lewis has won seven and hasn't got one yet. You well, could argue, d- why is that? I was just going to link to that, uh, Dan, because it's an interesting remark that Sam makes about it possibly being a lesser achievement to win fewer world titles. But then some people say it was harder back in those days to, to dominate the sport the same. So where do you stand on that? Is Lewis Hamilton the greatest of all time? Is it Michael Schumacher or is it someone else? Well, it's, it's hard to say, in fairness, because it's different eras. I mean, you've got to tip your hat to those back in the days of the likes of one Manuel Fangio, 
like when the cars like you you were driving for your life back then there was no safety like there is now you crashed you're more likely to die than you are to survive and it's like you're literally there with just this wooden steering wheel and that was it pretty much with no cover and no protection just a pair of goggles on and i mean the cars back then were nothing like they were today but the risk factor in your life was just almost like going out to war in a way it's like you're fighting against this car all the time and then the likes of michael schumacher who's obviously won seven world titles is He's the only man really with stats anywhere near Lewis Hamilton's. I mean, there's only one stat left. I think Lewis hasn't broken of his, which is fastest laps. And that's still like 40 races. He's got to get the next 40 races to get, I think, within one of Schumacher. It's crazy. But then Schumacher was quite a dirty driver. I don't know if you guys remember when he deliberately crashed in Monaco. I think it was in 06 because he was on provisional pole. And then he crashed to start red flag the session and no one would be able to get lapping. The stewards found him out and he got disqualified from qualifying as a result. And then a few years ago, I think it was 2011 or 2010, where Rubens Barrichello, his old teammate, they were no longer teammates at this point. He went to go and overtake him down the straight in Hungary and Schumacher drove him so close to the wall, probably centimetres. And if he crashed, could have easily killed one of them, easily. And he's quite a dirty driver for that. And that does tarnish his reputation because he was also quite... Not cocky, but quite a self-confident fellow as well. You could tell the way he walked around. He was quite full of you himself. You could say the same about Lewis, though, admittedly. But then again... Yeah, true. Is, but I don't in think some Lewis... cases, is, is the arrogance justified? Yeah, I suppose when you're that good, you can... you like. You are allowed to be that uh, confident. It's like Zlatan, isn't it? You can say, oh, he's, he talks the talk, but he walks the walk as well. And um, with Schumacher and Lewis, it was exactly the same. You've won seven world titles and no one's anywhere near you. You can say whatever you want almost. But then I don't know what it is. I think it's Lewis doesn't... No, I don't think Lewis has done as much dirty driving as what uh, Schumacher has done. Like You don't see Lewis deliberately red flagging a session. I don't think he's stooped that low. I mean, even the likes of um, Ayrton Senna, years and years ago and Alan Prost they used to be dirty with their teammates I think the dirtiest thing Lewis did to Rosberg was back up two drivers behind him in 2016 at Abu Dhabi because that was the only way he was going to win a world championship because Rosberg was in second and Lewis needed him to be in fourth and Lewis to win the race because of the points difference so I don't know I think you can argue can't you I mean Lewis and Michael are both very good drivers and they're both very uh, confident in their ability but then they've earned it it was you, Toby, that brought this to my attention of Rio Ferdinand making the claim that Lewis Hamilton is the best British sportsman or woman of all time. So that brings us on to our little kind of debate now, and you suggest this, Toby, who we think our top five or so are. So I've got quite a few to I should just say through. before you read it, Sam, it was he did just say sportsman, so he didn't include the women in that. So it's just a, a debate on the sportsman. Dan, we're going to start with yours because I've got loads to go through that as potential ideas before we get down to my few. So, Well, I've got three main ones at the moment because I've got about three or four who are just sort of on the side. So I think the three we're all definitely going to have is Andy Murray, Mo Farrow and Lewis Hamilton. I think they're the three standout names. And then Sir Steve Redgrave and Chris Froome are probably the two I'd add on to make my five. Yeah, I've um I've got Andy Murray, Sir Mo, who's obviously in the jungle at the moment, and or the uh, castle. <laughs> yes, sorry, the castle. I should say. Yeah, see, that's uh, that's um phrasing for you. I've forgotten that they're they're not in Australia. Yeah, Sir Mo and uh, Lewis Hamilton, and then just a, a few more to add to that. Chris Hoy or Sir Chris Hoy. Uh, oh, yeah. I think his achievements. I think ten Olympic medals, which takes some going. I think he's been overlooked by by a lot. Sir Bobby Charlton as well oh, yeah. uh, just for that you know iconic world cup win 
and uh, Sir A.P. McCoy as well, I think. Oh, that's a good one I missed. To um, be champion jockey for, I think it was 20 20, uh, times, is just an incredible achievement. I think sometimes in perhaps the less well-followed sports, those achievements can sometimes be overlooked by the wider public. But I think he's definitely up there, Sir A.P., in, in that list. Yeah, well, the ones I've eventually gone for are Chris Hoy, Hamilton. I then couldn't decide between Sir Steve Redgrave or Bradley Wiggins, both served, of course. Uh, I've gone with Wiggins in the end, actually. Andy Murray. And then I think you could really put pretty much any of the players that are in the 1966 yeah. World Cup winning side. I've gone for Bobby Moore. Charlton's probably is definitely the fair shout. I think you could easily suggest in there Ben Ainsley as well. I think he's won the most single medals for a British Olympian, Roger Bannister, Seb Coe, obviously said Ian Sterling Moss and Jackie Stewart earlier. Ronnie O'Sullivan, I think, would be a good shout. There's yeah. no other sportsman that's uh, been dominated their field quite like he has in a well. And the same Taylor. for Phil Taylor. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. I think they're both they're, they're both under that segment of they could be in there. But then again, it all kind of they're not really seen as proper sports by a lot of people. Unfortunately, I know we definitely don't agree there. Um, Lennox Lewis, obviously on the boundary, as we said earlier, and potentially for cricket, people like Jimmy Anderson yeah. as well. We might even have to do some sort of uh, poll on this, I think, Sam, on, on Twitter, maybe uh, put some of our nominations out and see what our listeners have to say. But it's definitely an interesting one. And as you say, there's got to be at least 20 or so names that uh, you could say and you could have perfectly justified argument for. And it definitely is one of those things. There's no real set answer. There's there's going to be so many different interpretations of it, and it all comes down to really what sports you prefer, I guess, and which ones you see is more admirable. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think with um, Olympic sports might be slightly uh, not like not more successful. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of because it's a four-year gap between yeah, more prestigious. That's the one because it's a four-year gap between events. Sort of like you've got it. Whereas with um, like the Formula Ones and the footballs, you can go um, maybe not necessarily the World Cup, but with like winning Champions Leagues or um, winning the F1 World Title. It's every year, and so the ability to maintain your levels of performance. I find obviously I don't know. I'm not an elite athlete. Um, obviously I don't know particularly well, but I think um, for someone to do it four four year gaps over and over and over again, like someone like just Steve Redgrave, I think um, it's overlooked personally. Yeah, I definitely agree there. And Dan, I hadn't noticed at all that you're not a professional athlete. Never tell. <laughs> oh uh, dear, I love a pint or two. <laughs> you mentioned the World Cup there with the World Cup winners and this is going to be another cheesy segue into the World Cup of Darts now, which uh, concluded a weekend ago now or two weekends yeah. ago with Wales coming out on top. Very uh, enjoyable tournament. I'm sure you'll agree, Sam, because I think you watched quite a bit of it as well. Yeah. Um, and and Wales absolutely dominated in the final, didn't they? It was uh, up against England, up against Michael Smith and Rob Cross. Uh, and it was just uh, a fantastic performance from the Wales team. Gerwin Price and Johnny Clayton, they uh, combined really well. And I think they became, if I'm right in saying, I think they became the fourth nation ever to win the World Cup of Darts in its 10-year history. England, the Netherlands and Scotland are the other three. But some, yeah, some good performances all around. And I always like the World Cup because you get to see 
a bit of pairs darts, which we don't normally see uh, on TV, and also some some of the players that you wouldn't normally see in the TV tournaments that get their big chance to play on a big stage from some of the smaller nations as well. So that's always nice to see too. But uh, wasn't to be for the Netherlands, even even with Michael Van Gogh, and they they had a new team this year. He, he partnered Danny Nopper, uh, and they I think they got to the quarterfinal. weren't able to get past that. But uh, yeah, very enjoyable tournament. I don't know what you thought, Sam. Wales deserve winners. Yeah, didn't Van Gerwen withdraw from injury in their last match that the Netherlands played? He might be right. I'm not, I'm not sure. I know he's had he's had injuries lately. Uh, he's had issues with his back. And he I was going to say, did he pull his hamstring or something jogging onto the stage? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always amazing how many injuries dart players actually pick up, to be honest. There's always someone with bother. At the moment, it's... Uh, Gary Anderson and Dimitri Vandenberg both struggling with knee issues. So they're a couple of the ones that are not sidelined, but playing through the pain, as it were. But yeah, I think it just wasn't to be for for the Netherlands. But yeah, some good performances all around. Scotland as well. I think they suffered from not having Peter Wright and Gary Anderson this year, who didn't travel. They had a, a team of a couple of experienced pros in, in John Henderson and uh, Robert Thornton, but they're not of the same quality perhaps as the other two that won it last year so it was uh, as I say Wales were highly fancy going into it and they delivered yeah the Scottish power I have to say if you put to me what do you think or perhaps not so much now but we've spoke about this before the stereotypical (laughs) image of a darts player they are precisely it large guys that are a bit bold proper just looking like they belong down like some Glaswegian pub or something just throwing darts (laughs) Getting sloshed as they throw little metal bullets <laughs> yeah. into a wall. <laughs> but Van Gogh, yeah, I've just seen now, he had an injury to his lower back, which is why he didn't allegedly perform to his best before the Netherlands crashed out to Germany, who were beaten by Wales 2-0 in the semi-final. The same scoreline which uh, England inflicted on Belgium before England lost 3-0 in the final. What was really a whitewash? And I definitely enjoy the World Cup of Darts because of the different format that you get with the pairings and the mixture of it it's not just pairings not just singles and it's combined but one player who looked like he was going to start playing to some form in the world cup before he played england was dimitri vandenberg and he in the grand slam this week he's really coming to his own we said before toby he can be very hit or miss but he made a new record of 114.88 of the averages record at the grand slam stunning performance to be honest and uh, he backed that up today uh, with another ton plus average uh, against Nathan Aspinall and won 5-1 against Nathan Aspinall and it's very rare uh, Nathan Aspinall was just coming off the back of a 5-0 win against Wayne Warren so it's very rare that Nathan Aspinall loses by a margin like that he's, he's world number six now but just couldn't go with uh, Dimitri's pace and when Dimitri's on song as we saw in the world match play earlier on this year very very difficult to beat him he's you know on, on song he's, he's one of the best in the world and he showed that in the match play and he's showing it in the grand slam so i think he's going to be one of the uh one of the hotly backed favorites going into the, the later stages just a note on the grand slam as well michael van gerwin we've talked a lot on this podcast about his uh declining form of late michael van gerwin went into this tournament 
at five to one with some of the bookmakers, cool. uh, which some of the people that, um, who I follow on Twitter who talk about darts were saying, Michael Van Gogh in five to one to win any darts tournament is just absolutely ridiculous. But that soon, that five to one soon vanished because a five nil win over Adam Hunt put paid to that um, as far as Van Gogh was concerned. And he's obviously full of confidence again and saying he's back on form and he's coming toward, back towards his best. So I think Van Gogh will be very, very keen to get another win on the board because he's only actually won a solitary TV title this year, which was the UK Open back in March. And that's quite rare for him. Normally, he racks them up every year. So he's got two more chances this year. You've got the, the Grand Slam and then the Players' Championship finals coming up later on this month to get another one on the board before the World Championships. And I'll start with you here, Dan. Who would your tip be for the, uh, the Grand Slam? I don't know, really. It's tight, isn't it? Though I mean, normally I'd be I'd put my house on Van Gogh and because he's just not this, this machine. Year. Yeah, but not this year. That's the thing. Um, Van Gogh in Price is doing very well at the moment. Just today, uh, Sky's commentator Stuart Pike described Gogh in Price as the best player in world darts right now, perhaps. I think I'd probably agree with that in terms of his form. Van Gogh might have other things to say, and, and Peter Wright as well, because Price is currently world number three. But uh, yeah. yeah, he's just playing sensationally. That being said, in his opening game, he played the women's world champion, uh, Mikuru Suzuki. Uh, and it was a very tight game, and Suzuki actually had a dart to win the match, but she missed it, and um, Price prevailed 5-4. So it was, he was given a real scare in that first group stage match by Suzuki, uh, but he has pulled through it, and uh, I think next up he's got his Welsh compatriot, Johnny Clayton group stages. So that'll be interesting. Teammates just lifted the World Cup <laughs> together, and now they're going to be scrapping it out in the Grand Slam group stages. So that'll be an enjoyable one. Yeah, I have to agree. Price is definitely the most informed player in darts at the moment. And I think he'd be my pick for the Grand Slam at the moment. Obviously, he's my pick for the World Cup with uh, with Wales. Worth just saying about Price that he has won the Grand Slam the last two years as well, won it 2018 and 2019. So definitely he'll be wanting to retain his title and to do three in a row would be quite some achievement. Greatest yeah. sportsman of all time from Britain? From Wales. <laughs> maybe from Wales, yeah. Ryan Giggs maybe might have something to say. But yeah, definitely doing, doing something for Welsh darts. I think the, the first World Darts champion ever back in 1970 was Leighton Rees, and he was a Welshman. So 50 years on from that event, perhaps it's going to be Gerwin's year. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Giggs won't, certainly won't be saying anything anytime soon. No, moving swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, the, on the women's game of darts just there, I just want to touch on Lisa Ashton. She had a good performance in the, the first round too. Yes, she did. She's been in uh, cracking form recently. Um, and in the winter series last week, she had two great wins. She beat Michael Smith and Rob Cross, both players in the top top seven in the world I think or at least the top ten in the world you know played fantastically well uh, in both games so she's really doing well and she has qualified for the world championships as well so we'll be seeing her there and I just think she's it's really good you know she's blazing the trail for, for women's darts she qualified for a tour card at the start of the year of her own merit it wasn't a women's qualifier or anything like that it was she went in she competed against the men and she earned a tour card off her own back and she's in this tournament as well now through a qualifier and all power, more power to her elbow, as far as I'm concerned. She's, yeah, she's doing fantastically well. And while we're on the subject of darts, we mentioned a lot. We've already mentioned his name slightly, but Michael Van Gerwen wasn't a, wasn't a happy Dutchman. 
earlier this week, wasn't no, it? No, quite interesting one, this, and uh, sort of conflicting uh, statements and stories about what happened. But it appears that there was a disagreement between Van Gerwen and player, I'm just trying to remember his name, Jonathan something, and not a player I'd actually heard of. I think somebody who's well down the rankings. And there was a disagreement about the shirt that he was wearing because he'd spilt the uh, other player, Jonathan, he'd spilt his drink down his shirt. So he changed into a rugby shirt and Van Gerwen had taken exception to this and there was an exchange of words and it ended up having to be broken up by security. But the other player was booted out of the tournament and Van Gerwen has since sort of tried to clarify events. So yeah, definitely a bit of aggro at the darts, not totally unknown, but uh, not what we like to see in terms of sportsmen. But perhaps that adrenaline rush might have been just what Van Gerwen needs to uh, go out and prove himself, which he seems to be doing at the moment on the Grand Slam stage. Jonathan Worsley, it just it was. I've just right. uh, searched that up. And Van Gerwen, we talk about a lot. This is a sportsman that we seem to go, not one podcast without mentioning this time for the wrong reasons. It's again, it's Ronnie O'Sullivan for an interesting scrap that it almost turned into in the snooker. He was playing Mark Allen. He had some complaints about what Allen was doing as he was sitting down and moving around that he was interfering with his line of sight despite being beyond the table and then before we actually discuss it itself I say I I really like seeing that I, I'd love to see more from that from Snooker make it a bit more entertaining and perhaps could uh, draw in some more fans with the, the personalities on the show because there are some big personalities in Snooker and other than Ronnie O'Sullivan I don't think really many people know of any Snooker players or, the, or their personality and it's interesting and entertaining to watch and uh, a bit of passion that's it a bit of passion goes a long way yeah, and we'll touch on our penultimate small news piece with the boxing. We've had Wilder come out and blame his costume, his gloves, the weight of his costume. But now, oh, and his trainer, I should add there, but now he's claiming that he may have been poisoned before his loss to Tyson Fury in their most recent fight. Now, I just think this is ridiculous. Wilder just needs to give up and like accept loss. Stop coming out with these pathetic and random excuses. His latest one is just based off Nothing more than conspiracy that he's clearly read online that that was circulating, well, not too long after the fight. But this poison one is just ridiculous and and crazy. It's definitely not happened and defamation. I think like there's no reason. I think Fury mentioned it. Why they can't go out and sue him for some kind of defamation breach because it's bad for the character. We have to say, with with the gloves and the costume and the trainer and the poison and all the rest of it, if all these things are true, then it's a wonder he even managed to get into the ring, isn't it, in the first place? Never mind, uh, you know, go go a number of rounds with with Tyson Fury. So it's, yeah, I think, as as you said, Sam, I think that the time is right to move on. I do think it's a shame that they haven't had a another rematch about this and, and sort of confirm the trilogy. Maybe we'll see that at some point in the future. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, as I say, I think yeah, people just need to move on as far as this one's concerned. And, and there are other fights in the future for both of them. I don't know, how, I don't know what you think, Dan. Well, who knows? I'm sure John T. Wilder will probably come out going on the trajectory of uh, crazy ideas he's coming up with. He'll come. He'll say next that he was abducted by aliens and he wasn't actually him fighting in the first place. You I read imagine. my mind then. I was going to say, what's his <laughs> next conspiracy going to be? I bet it's aliens. Well, you, well, you yeah. two love a good conspiracy, don't you? That was one of the slots on your show at one point. So maybe, yeah, conspiracy theories. Uh, yeah. We can find some more. I have yeah. to say, as much as I love conspiracies, I've not loved any of the on ones. <laughs> No, no. I mean, he's. I, I respect him as a man in terms of before the fight, he was this guy that was quite a humble bloke who 
he just did his thing, did his boxing, was obviously a world champion. But then since that fight against Tyson Fury, all I've heard of him in the news is just these crazy stories he's coming out with. And it's just, you're losing your respect at this point because it's kind of like his boxing. It's all about res- like getting respect from your opposing fighter. And he's just, lo- everything he's built up over the years of, in- of his time in the ring, it's just, he's just thrown it away within the last 12 months. It's just, it's a shame really. Yeah, he just needs someone to tell him to shut up and accept it and move on. And one yeah. of those fights he could be moving on with, he's been rumoured in recent months, was Andy Ruiz. He has now been called out by Luis Ortiz, 41 now, but uh, an emphatic victory in 45 seconds over Alex Flores in the heavyweight division. Is that a good fight that, as a boxing fan, you might want to see, Dan Ortiz versus Ruiz? Um, yeah, I think so. Because it's kind of like you've got the Ortiz who's got powerful one-punch sort of technique against a Andy Ruiz who's known as sort of like a, a slightly smaller fighter who's got a bit more speed about him, a bit of agility. I mean, this, he executed perfectly in his first fight against AJ. And if he can replicate any sort of form like that and be in good shape, then that could be a really, really interesting matchup. Because Ortiz is a bit like a a Deontay Wilder in a way in that he's got this powerful punch that he relies on so heavily and it's just if he if someone can avoid those punches like Tyson does then it become it can become quite um, tricky for them so it'd be interesting to see because if Ruiz isn't fully fit in terms of he's get fat on chocolate still then I think it I think uh, Ortiz might scrape that win I mean for me personally I would love to see Luis Ortiz fight uh, Alexandra Povetkin, both 41, the old dogs of boxing, and they very much have a similar style of uh, how they go about the ring with that heavy hit and one punches. They both look exhausted in their fights. I mean, but I think that could be an interesting matchup too. Well, the um, Povetkin knockout of Dillian White was unbelievable. That power, wasn't it? Um, was it him, Povetkin himself, that came out said it was someone else said that was like the shot of the decade or something. It was just so well-timed. They'll never land a punch like that again. It was just so clean. Yeah, it's a shame the uh, rematch can't take place due to uh, him contracting COVID, and that's due for January, along with uh, Chris Bill and Smith's fight now, who's also been moved to that. That was originally going to take place, but because of uh, his opponent pulling out, that will take place on the undercard still in late January. And that brings us to our last piece of news, called it on the prep notes, Fontwell Fiasco. A bit of chaos in the racing, yeah, at uh, Fontwell. And this was a stewards not being very helpful to the jockeys, as it turned out, because there were, I think it was, eight horses remaining in a, in the race at Fontwell. It was a two-mile, three-furlong contest at Fontwell, uh, the Mayor's Handicap Hurdle. And a horse called Dharma Rain finished nearly last, but she actually won the race. And that was because the other seven of the eight horses were all disqualified. And this was because there was total confusion when uh, racecourse staff appeared on the track with arrows and a checkered flag, which was meant to instruct the jockeys to move around to the outside of a horse that had been pulled up by its jockey and was being tended to by the medics. But uh, seven of the eight jockeys thought that the arrows and the checkered flag actually meant they needed to bypass the hurdle, uh, the next hurdle. So they all went round and only Jack Tudor on board Dharma Rain actually realised what was going on and jumped the hurdle, which meant even though he finished seventh of the eight finishers, 
he was declared the automatic winner. And well done to commentator Mark Johnson, who does some commentary for ITV as well, who actually spotted this and got it right and called it right that Dharma Rain had won, even though she crossed the line seven. But uh, as it was, jockeys were pretty much outraged uh, collectively, and it took the stewards half an hour uh, during an inquiry to actually decide who won the race. But no action's going to be taken against the jockeys because they realised the BHA, that's the British Horse Racing Authority, said, taking into account the poor visibility and the illusion that the chevrons have been placed in the hurdle, this gave riders cause for concern for the safety, so no imp- no penalty will be imposed on the riders, which seems fair. Uh, but just one of these bizarre ones where it's not very often you have a result card where there's only one uh, finisher that hasn't been disqualified. So, yeah, a little bit of an odd one. Yeah, headline grabbing. Now, I mentioned this is our one-year anniversary pod. Our, on our inaugural episode, Toby, you joined me and Dan back then to discuss horse racing and the start of the jump season. Blimey. You love horse racing. It's, I think it's either your favourite or second favourite sport up there with darts. That's right. In 30 seconds, sell why you think horse racing is one of the best sports around. You've sprung this on me, haven't you? <laughs> uh, I would say it's it's the best sport, in my opinion, because it's one of the most unpredictable. You have the, the great characters of racing, both in terms of the jockeys and the horses. You know, legends are formed, really. And I just think the excitement as well, which is obviously added to by the commentary, I don't think there's anything that really beats a close finish at Cheltenham in terms of excitement or the Grand National, uh, where half of all British adults come together to have a bet on the national and the competitivity of it. So that's why I would say racing is, in my opinion, along with darts, the best sport. Only five seconds over, so I think we'll allow that. First proper segment we're going to go into. A niche sport from around the world. This one, I think it's fair to say, I think a lot of us have heard of it, but it's got some relevance this week because of a story that broke out about it. It's the cheese rolling down Cooper's Hill near Gloucester. Uh, Incredibly. Half of all your niche sports involve a hill in some regard. (laughs) Something involving a hill. I just love hills. Push push down a hill or something being rolled down a hill. But this one, as you might guess, involves a cheese being rolled down the hill. Competitors from all over the world come to compete in this. And like, essentially, they are competing for three to four kilograms of cheese. It's recently replaced by a foam replica because it came out in, in one oh. year, hit someone in the head and a spectator and it injured them. Because oh the cheese could get up to 70 miles Shouldn't an laugh. hour. That's not, that's not funny. <laughs> Health and safety. I hope they were it's okay. Little, I think they cheese were. Cheese-sized hole okay. in their head. <laughs> 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 How the tables are turned. But yeah, you can reach up to 70 miles per hour in speed. The competitors get race down this incredibly steep hill to try and get to it. They usually end up falling and breaking limbs or pulling something. <laughs> First one that was uh, recorded in... Uh, writing was in 1862, but it's been going on for far longer than that. There's uh, not known about its origins or it's either. There's two theories. One, it was pagans, or two, it was just local tradesmen trying to make something for the town, which I said was near Gloucester. And the reason it was relevant this week was because, obviously, it was cancelled this year. In in May, it would have been. But for uh, some reason, a story only broke this year that they uh, the organisers actually rolled a commemorative baby bell down the hill on May to uh, honour what would have been <laughs> but for some reason that story didn't... Baby Bell. <laughs> it didn't break until this well, a couple of days ago because someone that done it put it on Twitter and Twitter <laughs> as it does blew it up <laughs> well 
what reason do we go on to Twitter if not to watch commemorative baby bells being <laughs> shut down hills? No, a baby bell even weighed it in on it and saying they support, supported the move, although it was. <laughs> this is just ridiculous. It, was, it did receive <laughs> some backlash because baby bells are actually French, not English. <laughs> 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 Imagine actually having backlash or something like that. Unbelievable. She's rolling controversy. <laughs> At least it's not a foam replica this time. No. They might have to get VAR to intervene with that decision. No roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, we'll go into a, a segment we brought back just because you're on the podcast. When you're not here, this, the this is what they've here. all been waiting for. All, all the listeners, you know, they've been listening for an hour now and they've just been waiting to hear. Yeah. Dan's stat of the week. So let me say it. Dan, what's your stat? Right. I've gone with a tennis-related stat today. And we now, now we know how women's tennis is known at times of being a bit of a farce, the length of the games, right? I mean, you see, like, the finals of major tournaments be lasting less than an hour because it's only a best of three sets. Well, the fastest ever five uh, best of five sets match lasted just 36 minutes when William Renshaw beat John Hartley. And then the second fastest, you may have heard of this person, uh, was uh, Fred Perry. He beat Baron Gottfried von Kram. I do apologise if I've said the name wrong. He beat him uh, just four minutes longer. It took him 40 minutes to beat him. And uh, he beat him 6-love, six 6-1, one, six one. And that was the same in the other game as well. So uh, we, set, we can say all we want about women's tennis being this, that and the other, but... Look, it's possible us men can pull out a very short game ourselves. I wonder if that's to do with a little bit to do with all the faffing around in tennis that seems to be these days. Like, I wonder if because the, the examples you've just raised were sort of back from the 1930s, weren't there, and, and before. So maybe back in those days they just got on with it. Whereas now there's all this bouncing the ball up and down for ages and rubbing your hands and looking into space for a bit and adjusting your. Uh, clothing and everything and it takes forever before they actually serve so maybe that's got something to do with it well yeah the likes of Rafael and Adal take half a minute <laughs> per point I think so even if they won six love six one six one they'd still take an hour all afternoon yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're in for a treat today listeners because we've not got three segments we've got four and our third one will be the sporting question yes is a penalty shootout style Yes, and I've noticed uh, Dan's shirt that he's wearing today, which says LA on it, and that might be particularly relevant to today's quiz uh, because it is on MLS teams and which <laughs> states oh. they're based in. Oh, OK. I, I have an admission to make here about MLS. I, back in the day when I was at school, there was uh, Top's Kick was an app, and it was like a fantasy football live app. Um, but you do it as instead of fantasy football works, you select your team before the game week. This one, you could watch the game, take players in and out, and as they score, put them in quickly and get points. When I was a sad little kid in summer holidays, my sleeping pattern was non-existent. And uh, I used to play this game and watch all the MLS games live or as many <laughs> as I could each each night to try. Right, and... there's oh, no well, excuses. I might here. have an advantage. However, <laughs> I'm not sure how my geographical knowledge of uh, yes. the teams is going to fare. Well, we're looking for the state that each team is yeah. based in, not the city. So I'm going to give you the, the team name and then you've got to think of the city and then of the state. So we'll, okay. we'll see how you get on. I'm all full with states, <laughs> but I'll have to you've, go. Got, you've got four each. Uh, 
Um, so, I'll, Dan, would you like to go first or second? I'll alternate between you. Would you like to go first or second? Penalty shootout style. Ooh, if we're going penalty shootout style, I think going second, then I know what I'm up against. Okay, you're going to go second. Right. Uh, Sam, you're up first then, first one. Sure. Pretty easy one to start with. Uh, the state and the team is Galaxy. LA, obviously, in California. That is correct, and you're one nil up. Get Dan, an, e- an yeah. easy, an easy one to start you off as well. The Red Bulls, uh, New York Red Bulls. Is, so yes. it would be New York. Yes, that is correct. Well done. Get one, one all. One all. Now it gets a bit harder. Sam, the Rapids, Colorado. Where is Where is Colorado? That's not a state itself, it is, is a it? State. Yes, yeah. you're right. Yep. Nice. Two one. And Dan, yeah. Inter. It's, oh, that's easy. It's Miami, but oh, what's the state? Uh, I tell you, you haven't been watching too much of the US election coverage because Miami's been all over that. Yeah, I know. Hold on. Oh, it will come to me. No, I think I've hit the post and it's gone wide. Oh, it's can Dan? I? Yeah. I yeah, it's in Florida. It is in Florida. Oh, yes. Miami, Florida. <laughs> Oh so, my god. 2-1 over to Sam. The Timbers. Portland. Um Portland is in Oregon. Well done. Oh. Yes. 3-1. So Dan, uh you do need to score this one or <laughs> Sam will have won. We we might just play it for pride anyway, but here we go. The Earthquakes. Uh, San Jose. But where the heck is San Jose? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, I'm just, I don't know Arizona. It's California. The San oh, Jose. I, I don't know California. why. I, I thought California, but I thought I thought we're doing one from each state. So I was like, yeah. oh, it can't be. But obviously, it's Sam. The fire. The fire. Chicago fire. Um, where Redding's boss Velko Paunovich. Previously managed. This is for four out of four, Sam. Oh, it's on the west coast, but where? Oh, it's in. Don't know. Illinois. That's just a guess. Correct. Illinois. Oh, yeah. Four out of four. Nicely done. And finally, Dan, the Sounders. Seattle, which yep. is that's not. Isn't that one of the Canadian teams? No, it's not. No, it's one. I'll give you clues. One of the west. One of the west. uh, Sorry, yeah, one of the west coast states. West coast. um... Yeah, it's on the border. Yeah, so narrowing it down a little bit. Oh my days! I'm, I'm actually awful states. I know all the teams. That's the thing. I know all the teams. (laughs) I know the city, but I don't know the state. Um... It's it's Washington. The Seattle oh Sounds, Seattle Washington. I was hoping you're going to say like United. I've gone DC United. And I haven't been able to get. <laughs> well, there's Washington a few. From that. Yeah, I think there's a few because there's Atlanta United as well. So I think there's a few yeah. United. But there we go. So Sam, on that occasion, the decisive winner, four-one in the end. So well done, Sam. You've you've cleaned sweep myself on. there with the, my uh, geographical knowledge. <laughs> does that make it two all overall? It does now? two oh. all set between Sam and the guests? It is now two all. Only out of about Do apologise to the guests for letting the team down there because that was a poor performance. I wasn't fully fit. <laughs> what injury did you have? Oh, I don't know. Your lower back. 
I think it was a bruised shin. <laughs> <laughs> and our last segment now is our sporting highlight. And Dan, I'll let you start off as the guest. Uh, this week would probably have to be... Uh, have you seen it in the Danish league? That fella that um, hit the crossbar with a bicycle kick and then yeah. the follow-up scored the volley. I think it's got to be that. That is an unbelievable goal because if at first you don't succeed, try again. It's literally... <laughs> right there in that clip and I mean it's just it was I remember seeing it thinking oh he's at the bar whatever he's probably going to score a tap in and then I watched it in slow motion the, the technique he got to still score on the rebound is incredible I think that's got to be my sporting moment for the week as for mine uh, I'm sorry if I'm stealing yours Sam because I haven't spoken to you about yours yet but I'm going with John Rahm's hole in one at the Masters uh, I just think that's a terrific piece of skill, uh, possibly the best shot I've ever seen from a golfer. And I think that's worthy of, of mention in the sporting highlights of the week. You know what? I was going to go for that, but uh, I've gone for something a bit different. I don't know if you've seen it. It was uh, this guy called Chris Nikic grabbed headlines earlier this week when he became the first person with Down syndrome to complete the Ironman. I did see at that. 21 yeah. years of age. Oh, yeah. Fantastic in 16 hours, 46 minutes, which uh, sounds like a long time, but not when you've got to do a 2.4k swim, 112k bike ride, and then a marathon afterwards as well. So uh, fair play to him. Incredible. That is an incredible achievement for anyone. Well Shows done. that boundaries are there to be broken. 100%, definitely. Dan, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Good to have I no you back. Doubt have um, I have no doubt in my mind that you will be back again with your stat. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming back and joining us. No, thank you very much for having me. It, it's been a pleasure for myself as well. Great seeing you two again. And uh, I'll look forward to listening to the podcast for months to come. Cheers. And of course, Toby, thanks for joining me as well. And no worries at all. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Please follow us on any streaming services you use to listen to podcasts and follow us on social media. Twitter is at Ultimate Sport P and Instagram is The Ultimate Sports Podcast so you don't miss any future sports news or guest episodes. And we'll see you next time.